Why are we doing this? This is the Evil Twins. How are you doing? What's up, motherfuckers? I think you're nervous because we're going to use fake names. We're in a pioneer graveyard, and those people were fucking tough. We're pussies. Yeah, Yeah. well, I got a little surprise for you. (laughs) Oh, no, not another one of these. Another surprise, (laughs) my friend. And we're sitting here smoking some pot. (laughs) I gave my life to Jesus. He said, here, no thank you. You can have it back. We, we uh, consumed some psilocybin mushrooms today. Uh, we're going to be going down to the UFO convention down in McMinnville, Oregon. He's got to be nervous, don't you think, coming, coming on to our podcast? Let's treat him with the respect he deserves. I'm excited to talk to him. Let's get him on the line. Welcome, Welcome to the Evil Twin Podcast. What's up, people? <laughs> this, it sounded like you said, that. what's up, people? Like the, like you're talking to the Pope or... That's who I was talking to. Oh. The pontiff himself. Okay, so why don't you pontificate on what we're talking about today? I just like things from the part of the world, such as Italy uh-huh. and France, maybe even Slovenia. Hmm. Things like art. I wonder how many people know where Slovenia is. I at didn't least know. In I this had to country. look it up. Yeah, I had to look it up too. Yeah. <laughs> the person we're talking to today is from Slovenia, so mm-hmm. it's going to be kind of... I don't think we've ever, I don't think I've ever even spoken with somebody who was in Slovenia. Right. And as far as I know, he's an American. Yeah. Living in Slovenia. So it'll be interesting to talk to him about that and what that's like. Yeah. To be an American there. So why don't we stop beating around the bush and actually just introduce our guest for the day? Okay. I'm reading from his bio on his website. Sounds good. Noah Charney holds master's degrees in art history from the Courtwalt Institute and the University of Cambridge and a Ph.D. from the University of, uh, okay, here's a weird word, L-J-U-B-L-J-A-N-A. I don't know how to pronounce that, so I'm not even going to try. Interesting. But there's a university there where he got his Ph.D. Um, He's an adjunct professor of art history at the American University of Rome, a visiting lecturer for Brown University Abroad Programs, and is the founder of the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art, hmm. a nonprofit research group on issues in art crime. It's kind of a random person for us to talk to, seemingly. Yeah. But why don't you tell them kind of how you got uh, got to know this guy and how you? Uh, just... um, I'm fascinated with art crime. I guess I'm, I'm not maybe not to the point that he is <laughs> getting a PhD in it. But um, I, you know, I think it's an interesting topic. And um, I came across a couple of his books. Um, the first one that I read was called "Stealing the Mystic Lamb." Mm. And it's primarily about this uh, painting called the Ghent Altarpiece that was painted in something like 1332. Okay. Um, something like. Yeah. And it was it was kind of this, uh, you know, bridge between the old and, the, and what was at the time the new, the Renaissance, okay. the opening of the Renaissance. It was sort of the first huge piece in oil. That was done. Wow. And oil painting. Um, and the uh, the painter, the artist, w- which was actually, turns out, was Brothers that painted this piece. Hmm. Um, one of them died before it was finished. Nice. Um, they were like miniaturists. They were into painting in like a small format. But they painted this massive thing. It was called a polytriptych. Okay. And a, a triptych is like this uh, a piece that folds out. Yeah. And there's painting on the inside and the outside and this one had a couple different folds in it wow and the way that it folded out it was like it would open to the whole room and it was used for events in this huge um church Hmm. in uh in uh in ghent okay um and there's a lot of history behind this piece it's been stolen i guess it's been part of like 13 major art crimes it's been stolen over the years it was it was the um, one of the featured pieces in the in the movie Monuments Men hmm. with George Clooney and all those guys. Um, it was a, a, about the the theft of a bunch of art um, during World War II. Um, so so his book is about this piece and about the making of the piece, of, of this piece and about all of these crimes that it was involved in. And he spends like the first four chapters talking about this painting and breaking it down, going into every detail of each panel. And you'd really have to to listen to the audiobook, which is what I did, and look at this painting while he's talking about it to really get the full the full uh, feel of it. But um, it's an amazing piece. And the uh, the painter, Van Eyck, um, 
he didn't do a lot, but this was considered his his greatest masterpiece. Hmm. Wow. So it was a bridge, kind of like the MySpace of social media. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> basically. It was the MySpace of painting. Of, it was of, the forgotten painting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, it wasn't probably forgotten, but... Um, it wasn't to art historians. Right. But to people like myself who yeah. don't... This is know. the first you've heard of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it's this amazing piece. Look it up, people. Just go to the Wikipedia page. There's a massive uh, um, image you can download and look at this thing. It's crazy. What was it called again? The Ghent Altarpiece. Okay. Um, and so that was the first book I read of his. And then there was another book that he wrote called The Art Thief, which covers a bunch of different art crimes um, in, more, in a more general way. But they're individual stories about different art crimes. Mm-hmm. And it, um, it's a great book. I've always thought the thing about um, this idea of the thievery of art. Mm-hmm. When you start talking about it, it's like such a complex subject. Because mm-hmm. as soon as you start talking about the actual thefts and the crimes that are committed by these people, you have to know a little bit about the art to even realize the significance of the theft itself. That's right. And then the more you learn about the art, then you learn about the artist, then you learn about the history of the artist, then you learn about the kind of the techniques and the, how mm-hmm. they were groundbreaking. And like, it, it's like a fucking rabbit hole mm-hmm. that you can go down. Cause it keeps going back, you know, the, yeah. where did they learn their techniques and, and so forth. And the, the one weird thing about a lot of the so-called masters um, of the Renaissance, some of them, we don't even know that what techniques they used. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a documentary that, that I watched recently called Tim's Vermeer. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's about this guy named Tim Jennison, who um, is fascinated with Vermeer paintings. And he's a guy who knows a lot about optics and about, um, and about video production and stuff like that. He's his company. New tech has, has a lot of inventions. He's got a lot of inventions under his belt. He's a rich, very smart dude. And he decided he wanted to paint a Vermeer because he, he, he came up with a technique that he thought would work to actually duplicate Vermeer's style, mm-hmm. even without being an artist. Wow. And this guy's just a technical guy. He's just like an engineer type dude. Yeah. And uh, this documentary was produced by Penn and Teller and, and showed his whole process. Like he built the room. Wow, that was like a, the, a like model recreated, recreated room. the room that Vermeer did most of his paint. I mean, sorry, um, yeah, Vermeer did most of his paintings in, and um, and then painted it. It took him like I don't remember, like eleven months or wow. nine months or a long time. But they, they, this documentary sort of showed the whole process and how he did it, and it's pretty, it's pretty ingenious the technique he came up with. You should definitely talk to this dude about that. Yeah, because I want to see what his his opinion is on that. Yeah. you know, and 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 does he really think that Vermeer used optics in this way? Hmm. You know, so cool. Well, let's uh, let's call him. So, um, Slovenia, is that where you're at? I know, right? Isn't that crazy? Like, tell us a little bit about that. I don't know anything about that country. Well, I'm a big proponent of it. I think it's just about the best place on the planet to live. And I actually have a bunch of um, points in support of that argument. It's not just because I happen to have ended up here. I married a Slovene and I, we have kids here. And um, we were living in a couple of different places, mostly in Italy. But once you have... Um, uh, experience living in a variety of countries, you start to see what's important and what makes life easier for you versus what's sort of idealized um, and charming. Like Italy is very charming, but if you actually have to get anything done, then um, it's not the easiest place to to deal with any bureaucracy or business or, you know, paperwork. And when we knew we were going to have kids, we wanted somewhere a little bit logistically easier. And I've always been fascinated with Europe. I've really probably over-idealized it. And growing up in the U.S., I, from age 16 on, I lived in Paris for a year um, through my boarding school, had an abroad program, and I knew I wanted to live in Europe. Um, and so it was just a question of where, you know, the future Mrs. Charney would have been from. And uh, Slovenia's got pretty much everything going for it. Um, 
And so I'm, I'm here for the long haul. We actually just bought a house. Nice. So this is going to be home base. That sounds great. So what's the, uh, like the government like there? Well, it it's, was socialist part of Yugoslavia until 1991, but they ended up keeping all the best parts about socialism, the stuff of, uh, you know, the way the government is designed to take care of you um, in a way that isn't oppressive but is helpful. So they have extremely inexpensive, extremely high-quality universal health care. Um, early childhood education is amazing. Everything's subsidized by the government. We have these little examples, but um, in the U.S., if you uh, go on maternity leave, in most cases, it's three weeks unpaid, and here you get 18 months paid. Wow. And the government just totally, if your kid is sick and you have to stay home from work, the government pays you for the day you missed. Wow. This kind of stuff that I tell, especially to Americans, they think it sounds like I'm making stuff up, well, you know, but they really do a nice job of taking care of you. You know what Americans automatically go to, too, right? How much, how much taxes do you pay? <laughs> well, this is the thing. I don't know how they swing it, but um, I pay less taxes here than I did when I was in the States. Huh. Damn it. Yeah, well, I, it's okay, I now i got to move there. Well, it's probably not, not spent on some massive military. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, no. I mean, if, if you get into sufficient trouble that you don't want to stay at home, then this is a good place for everyone to move to. I think uh, I, should, I should actually write a book about the logistics of the world moving to Slovenia. Oh man, that sounds like I, I'd bring, I'd pick that one up. So, is mm-hmm. there uh, like an art scene there, or there is there a lot going on in the art world? There is. It's actually really good, and there's some major Slovene artists. There are also some major artists who you you would never guess it, but they live here. Um, the most famous one is the um, conceptual artist Ulai, who um, I studied in my intro to art history class. You know, studying him in the same course that we study people like Giotto and uh, Michelangelo um, and he's one of the only conceptual performance artists you get in um, standard intro to art history books um, and he lives here. He married a Slovene as a lot of the, the foreign imports do <laughs> and, um, and he's just one of a, a handful of uh, very prominent artists that surprise you that live in Ljubljana which is a really vibrant city. Wow. So um, I, I had a question. So this is Thad. I'm, I'm the brother that knows nothing about any of this stuff. My brother <laughs> actually knows more about it than me. But um, I, just, I was wondering after looking into your history and, and the, the books that you've written, did, did somebody you know, steal your lunch box or something? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what got you so fascinated with um, art, art, crimes. art crimes? Well, I... I approached studying art history always like detective stories. Mm-hmm. So I had really good art history teachers when I was younger. Starting in, when I was living in Paris, age 16, we had an art history professor who every day would take us to a different museum or church in Paris um, from 2 to 4 p.m., and it was in French, so we were trying to learn the language, but it's so much more exciting to learn in the presence of the work of art. And also at university, I was taught that works of art are there to be read and interpreted, especially the sort that I was most interested in, which are um, old master renaissance paintings and sculptures that were designed to be visual puzzles. Mm. And when I teach, I try to present the works of art as I would like a whodunit detective story. And there's some works that I teach overtly in that way, especially when I'm teaching the history of art crime, to try to draw people in. So, for example, when I teach the Caravaggio St. Matthew cycle, which are three paintings in the Church of San Luigi dei Francesi in Rome, each one has an overt mystery built in. And in one of them, for example, the question is, which of the figures in the painting is St. Matthew? And there's a red herring, the person you're supposed to think is St. Matthew when you first look at it. And that, of course, isn't the right answer. But it's the answer that most guidebooks will tell you, most tour guides, even a handful of art history books have this red herring as the person who we're supposed to believe is, is St. Matthew. Mm-hmm. And walking students or readers through the mysteries inherent in a work of art that was intentionally meant to be a puzzle that you think about and think through and engage with, not just thinking, oh, it's pretty or it's not, but something you're going to really get into. It was an easy step for me to shift to actual crimes that involve works of art that have these puzzles built into them. I was uh, reading through, um, well, actually, I have audio versions of both your um, Stealing the Mystic Lamb and The Art Thief. Mm -hmm. And the thing that 
I think drew me to you and wanted wanted made me want to interview you was the stealing the mystic lamb that book. Um, I was fascinated by just the first few chapters and how detailed you went into the description of the painting and uh, the description of the whole piece. And um, how much how much research did you have to do on that? And did you go to Ghent to to check it out or? Yeah, well, thank thank you for the kind words. I did a lot of research about that, um, and that was part of the fun. For for me, that artwork has everything I like in it. Yeah. So it's got two components. It's the arguably the single most important painting ever made because it was the first monumental oil painting. It was the forecast of realism. It's got all of these firsts in it that um, made it, uh, it was so famous from the moment it was painted that it became a destination for artists and was incredibly influential. And it's got all these mysteries built into the iconography of the painting itself. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's also the most frequently stolen artwork in history. And anything bad that could happen to a work of art seems to have happened to this one. So it had both of my hats on <laughs> in, um, in one investigation. And I did spend quite a bit of time in Ghent. I did a lot of um, research primarily with um, secondary source material for the Flemish, which is unfortunately not one of my languages, um, and with as much primary source material as I could swing. Um, and I'm very confident that the book is was definitive up to the time that it was published. But I don't know if you noticed, but we actually released um, a second edition as an e-book, hmm. which you might not have had a chance to look at, which has some new updates. And I'm going to have to do a third edition because I've been in touch with the conservators who are doing a five-year restoration of the painting. Mm -hmm. And they have made some major discoveries that haven't yet been published that are going to make us rethink the history of the object and the interpretation of it, including um, one of them that it seems to have been finished several years later than anyone thought, oh. which makes people rethink a lot of details about its history and you know, even the extent to which one of the painters, Hubert Van Eyck, might have been involved in it. Yeah, that was. I, I was about to say, was there a third, <laughs> a third artist involved in this? <laughs> well, there actually was another Van Eyck brother, Bartholomew, who was a painter, um, and a sister might have actually been involved in painting too. But I love the mysterious figure of Hubert Van Eyck. Um, I actually named my dog after him. We call him Ike for short. <laughs> but yeah, my, my wife got him for me for my 30th birthday while I was finishing the book. And she let me name him after this mysterious younger brother, uh, older brother of Jan. Um, but the, uh, the idea that, you know, we've written so much about this painting and people have researched it. Literally centuries worth of scholars have been interested in it. And it's one of the most famous works on the planet. And yet we can find these surprises still that we might even not even know the year it was finished. Um, we might not even know which of the figures painted was painted by Jan van Eyck and which were added later. There's, there's crazy surprises, even in a work that we feel like we've been through definitively. And it's such a massive piece and it's so detailed. Um, and there's just so many layers to it. It's got stuff on both sides, and um, mm -hmm. and and the 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 iconography is totally different, right? That doesn't have the idealized um, figures like it with Adam and Eve. They're right. totally they look like just people you'd see at a nude beach or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's got a shocking level of realism, which had never been used before for um, religious works. Normally, divine figures. Um, figures from the Old Testament were shown in an idealized way, mm -hmm. um, both in a sense that they weren't recognizable models, that they wouldn't have looked exactly like the people that the artists used to pose for them, but also in the sense that they were ideally beautiful. And these figures have literally warts and nostril hairs and, and funny, you know, skin uh, discolorations and, and, and non-idealized proportions. And it was really shocking for people. Um, and you're right, the work is, is very complicated. Uh, if, if any listeners are unfamiliar with it, um, Google it right away. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, we can describe it briefly, it's an enormous triptych consisting of 12 panels, um, some of which are two-sided. And a triptych is a three-part altarpiece, so it's on hinges and there are wings that open and close. And it would have been closed most days, so you would see the outside of the two wing panels. Um, and on holidays and Sundays, it would have been open, so you'd see the inside. 
Um, and it's got a very complicated iconography with over a hundred figures. It's got a level of realism that's truly incredible, including details as small as the reflection of the sun in a horse's eye. And then you have um, this macroscopic, microscopic kind of God's eye view of the scenes depicted in it. Um, and it's got all sorts of mysteries built into it, and people really aren't sure what everything in it represents and means. But it's fun if you're into puzzles or riddles, and who doesn't like that, right? To try to pick your way through it. How, how much? How much drugs do you think this, these guys were on painting this thing? <laughs> <laughs> this one, well, there, there's a, a hallucinatory element to it. I think I know what you're what yes. you're saying, especially some of the figures. You know, the patience that goes into painting it. Yeah. Van Eyck was using. He didn't invent oil painting, but he perfected it in a way that no one before him had done, and he was using brushes that were as small as, you know, a couple of badger hairs. Mm. And he's doing it in this enormous painting that weighs 1,500 pounds and is the size of a barn wall. And he put in details that literally nobody could see. And mm. this is something that blew my mind because I finished a book on it. It came out in 2010. Um, after that, the Getty um, Research Institute published a website that um, I, I'm would recommend to all of your listeners that it's called Closer to Van Eyck, and it's got a one billion pixel image of the Gandalfer piece, including images in special lighting, so X-ray, infrared, and UV lighting. Wow. And what's very cool about this is you think, okay, I've spent years writing about this book, uh, writing about this painting, I wrote a book about it, um, I know this inside and out, and I actually noticed a detail in this enormously high-quality, zoomable online image that I never noticed when I saw the work in person, mostly because it's small and you can't get close enough to it because it's encased in, um, in protective glass, so you can't get more than about a meter away. Mm. So you still find these discoveries, but it's actually cool that a digital image can actually be easier to find a detail than if you look at the work in person. Wow. Are you an artist? No, I'm really bad. Um, it's nice of you to ask. <laughs> no, I, I mean I can I can draw like um, cartoon characters for my daughter, and she seems happy with it. But I'm really really bad. So I think that's why I'm impressed by people who are great artists because I can't do it myself at all. What was it? Um, do you think then that sort of led you to art and being so interested in art? Um, if it wasn't making art, was it simply just yeah. the fascination with it? Almost seems magical, or well, I was quite sure I wanted to be Indiana Jones for a long time. Mm. I mean, who, is, who isn't, right? But, <laughs> but actually, I wrote my college entrance essay about why I wanted to be Indiana Jones. And the first line I remember, because when I got in, the, the admissions person said that he particularly liked it. It was, it's not just the whips and leather that are appealing. <laughs> and I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist um, until... I started to study a little archaeology and realized that it's, well, it depends on your demeanor, but I found it super boring, and there's a lot of dusting off of, like, pottery shards, and you have to be very patient and not mind being sweaty and hot in the sun, um, and you have to be good at chemistry, and I was none of the above. So I shifted gears while I was at university to, um, to art history, and part of it is a lack of maybe visual imagination on my part. If you're an archaeologist, you're dealing with things that were and are in skeletal ruins, and you have to imagine what they were like. With art history, it's still there, um, and you're trying to interpret it. And so it's maybe that detective side that is present in archaeology, but you have to infer so much and project your imagination on what, you know, this fragment of pottery might have been a part of if we were to piece it all together, that um, it was more appealing to me to um, focus on something that you could actually deal with in its entirety and tr without having to uh, mentally rebuild it yourself. And I'm sure that um, galleries and nice cathedrals and that type of environment is a better environment than some dusty place in Egypt. <laughs> well, I have to say, I'm a bit of a city boy, and I'm kind of like... I, I like big cities. I like going to museums. I like going out for coffee. And so the part of that is, you know, are you going to spend most of your time, you know, hopping between Caravaggio paintings and getting cappuccinos in Rome? Or are you going to be 
in the wilds of Peru, you know, sleeping on the ground and, and being sweaty and stanky. And so part of it's a lifestyle choice. Totally. Hey, I was going to ask you, I'm, I'm in the art thief. Um, you did this great, uh, it was a couple chapters on just the, um, the auction Mm-hmm, at, yeah. towards the beginning of it and it, it got me thinking have you been involved in those auctions have you been present at those auctions or yeah. what was your experience yeah with that? i was i was um very proactive in testing out different fields within the art history world while i was still a student so i spent two summers as an intern with christie's once in the boston office and once in the london office um, I also was an intern at a museum, and then, of course, I knew academia, and those are the three major categories that you could go into, the trade, academics, or museums, if you're an art historian. And so I really enjoyed my time at Christie's, and to be honest, had I not sold The Art Thief, I probably would have opted for a career in an auction house environment like Christie's, because hmm. um, I like the, the puzzle of it. You, um, I worked in London in the Books and Manuscripts Department. We worked on the sale of the collection of William Foyle, who is a British um, bookseller. He set up Foyle's Bookshop, which is basically the predecessor to, to all bookshops today. The idea of this bookshop, and then you have a cafe component, and it's universal. Um, Barnes & Noble and Borders were inspired by his bookstore in London. He had a huge uh, collection of rare books. And each one you have to catalog, and it lands on your desk, and your job is to be a, a historical detective and learn as much as you can about the object. Because the more you learn about it in terms of its content and story, um, but also in terms of its biography as a physical object, because if there's a famous owner, for example, it raises the value of the object, um, the more money it will get for everyone involved, for the auction house and the seller. And so you get to play with these incredibly valuable, rare, beautiful things that are much more expensive than you could afford yourself. And you also have a, a social component that I always enjoyed, and it's a very um, elegant, uh, high-end, sort of high-society environment to work in that you get to live vicariously by the fact uh, that you're working um, with a business that caters to the sort of people who are, you know, jetting off to Saint-Tropez or to the... Um, you know, St. Bart's and buying, you know, a million dollar painting for fun. So it's a little bit like being in a James Bond movie, which I thought was good fun. <laughs> now, so the whole, the whole auction aspect of the book totally intrigued me because I knew I, I felt like I was being set up. But, uh, but it was also amazing to listen to the process of how it all went down. Um, and I don't want to give away anything in the book, um, but there was, you know, several different <laughs> paintings and weird swaps and things going on. Is that the kind of thing that ever actually does happen or is that simply fiction for the book or what type of stuff actually happens? Well, I, re- I was a little bit backwards. I wrote the book first and only okay. afterwards became a specialist in art crime. Mm-hmm. And I figured that it would be interesting to study it academically because in doing research for this novel, I realized that there was relatively little published in the field, um, and most of it was, was journalistic accounts, so there was almost nothing from an academic perspective. So I wrote the book first and then turned to studying it. Mm-hmm. So I learned after the fact that this sort of stuff has actually happened, but it was mostly me using my imagination, plus some of the initial research, and people within the industry afterwards who read the novel said, yeah, that would really work. Um, wow. That is something that we should really be aware of because it could happen. And I afterwards realized that some of the major plot twists have, in fact, happened in true history of art crime, but I didn't realize that when I was writing it. So you are an artist. <laughs> just well, a, well, just an artist with words. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 the sort of people who commit crimes, um, you know, they, they take as much time as they like to plan it out. But if, there's a, if we're watching a film, and one of the things that inspired me to write the book is how much I enjoyed the Thomas Crown Affair remake, the Pierce Brosnan film. Mm-hmm. I loved how um, it surprised you with these, uh, with these twists that when we are watching the film, you know, we have a few seconds to process, and it seems amazing. But, of course, the screenwriter has as many months as he likes to try to come up with them. And uh, one of the things I do with my students when I'm teaching the history of art crime and I teach it every summer 
in Italy on a program run by ARCA, the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art, which is a research group that I founded in this field. And every summer we run a postgraduate program in Italy that's the first and only academic program in this field. And I teach the history of art crime. And one of the things that I do is I try to encourage the students to, um, to essentially put on the guise of criminals and try to figure out how to get away with these things, how you smuggle an object X from country Y to country Z. And they're really good, and they come up with things in minutes that would really work and that I'd never thought of. And, you know, if you get smart people thinking about how to break the law, um, especially, <laughs> I mean, it's okay because these are people who are trying to protect art, so we're doing this as an academic exercise purely, of course, um, but you come up with really clever things. And so it, it's not all that surprising that you can come up with these dramatic twists if you're willing to take the time to sit and think about it and to understand a bit about the environment that you're trying to hoodwink. And that's also in the world of forgery, you know, I think I would probably be a pretty successful art forger if I put my, my mind to it these days because I've studied how many um, or how past successful forgers have indeed succeeded and, um, and made an academic study of it. And then it's pretty easy to come up with your own twists. Yeah, I think yeah. In order to do good forgery, you need to have a you need to know enough about the materials that were used and how they were made because you know you're not going to get you're not going to get something past the the chemists if if it doesn't match. So that's exactly what most people think, and you're correct. Except the major surprise that I've learned in terms of researching for my most recent book, The Art of Forgery, was. Okay, you're absolutely right. There is not much that will get past the chemists and the forensic investigators. But the big surprise was that art is almost never subject to forensic investigation. Hmm. And that there's no good reason why not. It's a complicated social history of art collecting that essentially the buyers are very hesitant to demand that works of art be subject to forensic testing before they buy them because there's a sort of gentleman's agreement within the art trade, and it has been for centuries, that, you know, these are gentlemen selling works of art to other gentlemen, and it's not the dumb thing to um, want to pop open the hood and see what's inside. You're just supposed to accept that everybody's on the level, and you shake hands on it. And, um, you know, real life doesn't work like that, or it shouldn't, but it is very rare for works of art to be subject to forensic testing when they're up for sale, it's usually only after the fact when the buyer gets suspicious for one reason or another. Hmm. Um, and that was a big surprise to me. That's interesting. What do you think about this uh, new this Caravaggio that they've I've been seeing in the news? The, they found yeah. it in their found it in their <laughs> attic or something. Yeah, I'm actually about to write an article about that. There ain't no way it's by Caravaggio, and I could okay. tell just from looking at the photograph of it. And that's one of the points of the articles is connoisseurship is now a naughty word these days. And connoisseurship is um, the term for an expertise in a field or artist or period of an artist's work that is almost intrinsic. It's like, would you spot your cousin across a crowded room? Mm -hmm. You just know it's your cousin. Well, people just have this sense that they, they recognize the hand of an artist that they've studied for years and seen all their work intimately. Um, but it's not considered cool these days. Forensic testing is the way to go, plus provenance research. So researching the biography of the object to think, could it plausibly be in the location where it was found? And connoisseurship is, is still the default in the art trade. Most people yield to experts who say this is authentic or not hmm. it just happened world it's considered a bit of a parlor trick and a bit old-fashioned but i took one look at the photograph of it and i said this is uh probably contemporary copy after caravaggio there's no way it's by caravaggio it just it just doesn't look good <laughs> for lack of a better term it looks not as well painted as he was capable of um and something about the lighting is off, and it looks like a, a decent copy probably painted within a few decades of the original, but um, I would bet a lot of money that's not by him. 
But the media loves a good story, right? Totally. So, so do you think that the um, owners of this art don't want uh, the scientists to look at it too closely, partially because they don't want to know the truth? <laughs> or is there is, well, that, a little bit of that? At this, point, at this point, they really have to, um, you know, it's, if something is, looks like the work of someone so famous, then um, they really have to get it tested because yeah. um, people are not going to buy it for the prices that they're hoping um, if they want to sell it, if, if there's not a more secure guarantee. But there's a long history of this. For example, um, in my book, The Art of Forgery, there's a chapter about the so-called American Leonardo. And in Kansas City, there was a family called the Hans, who, while they were serving um, uh, in the military in Europe, acquired what looks like um, a Leonardo painting that is in the Louvre. And the Work in the Louvre is certainly authentic. So the question is, is this a copy also by Leonardo? And a lot of old master artists would copy their own work, so that's entirely possible. And Sir Joseph Duveen and Bernard Berenson looked at a photograph of this American version. And just based on the photograph, they said, there's no way this is by Leonardo. And one part of that is that they had seen the original in the Louvre, but the other part is they said it just didn't look good. It didn't feel right. And the Hans brought a lawsuit for libel because the word of these two leading experts undercut dramatically the value of the work of art. And so the, it's a very famous trial that went on, and um, it was eventually settled. But most people these days do not think that the American Leonardo is by Leonardo. Um, but it did sell for a considerable amount. I think it might have sold for $2 million not too long ago um, with someone hedging their bets. And also the fact that it was involved in such a high-profile story increases its value um, as a curiosity. But for the Caravaggio work, you know, we have to see. If they want to sell it at some point and they want $100 million, which is what an authentic Caravaggio probably would get, something like that, they're going to need to get it forensically tested and what will the forensic testing show? Well, forensic testing almost never guarantees do is raise red flags about the chronology. So it can check to see that there are no anachronistic materials in the painting. It can also do things like um, Caravaggio did not do underdrawing. He would incise his canvases um, with basic lines that he would use for shapes to, to build his figures on, but he didn't do underdrawing, which was very unusual. So one thing to check is, you know, with x-rays, ultraviolet, and infrared light to see what's underneath the surface. Um, it's probably got um, a basic underdrawing that is exactly like the original which suggests that it was copied by someone who had seen the original or was standing in front of the original. Um, there's a parallel with a recently discovered copy of the Mona Lisa in the Museo del Prado in Madrid that was found underneath what looked like a mediocre copy of the Mona Lisa. And it made headlines about a year ago or two years ago because when they did this fancy lighting um, photography, they found that the underdrawings in this copy of the Mona Lisa exactly matched the underdrawings in the original, which did not match the surface painting. So what that means is, you know, when, when Leonardo was painting, um, or any of these artists, they wouldn't have a single idea and then stick it on the canvas. They would usually develop the idea slowly, and they would maybe change things as they go. And looking at works of art with this special lighting can show what's underneath the surface and can show the changes that were made in positioning of figures or whatnot, or maybe you put a vase in the background and you decide not to have that, you paint that out. Um, what is a surprise then is that a copy of the Mona Lisa should also have the same decision-making process underneath the surface. Hmm. And what it tells us is that the work that is in the Prado was painted at the same time and at the same pace and almost certainly in the same studio as the original. Mm -hmm. Probably by one of Leonardo's pupils who was teaching himself how to paint by doing so. But it's very revealing what is underneath the surface. 
And so that is what will probably be definitive with this newly discovered quote-unquote Caravaggio. So have you heard of um, Tim's Vermeer, the documentary? I did hear about that, yeah. It's, it's a cool idea, and um, there's a new project that's similar with a Rembrandt where they're trying to um, digitally paint a new Rembrandt based on um, having scanned you know, his figures and his techniques, something that would be a new painting that looks plausibly by his hand. Mm. And it is a very cool idea. Yeah, in this, in this um, documentary, this guy Tim Jennison, he, um, he has this idea that Vermeer had used optics to um, project an image onto a wall behind him. And then, he, had a t- and then he came up with the technique that he thought was plausible that he could have used to uh, actually do his paintings. And, uh, and then he replicated it. And he, he's not even an artist, but he was able to paint this painting that looked somewhat like it. I mean, I'm sure you would look at it and know that it wasn't a Vermeer, but or, um, or, yeah, Vermeer. But um, I was just wondering if you had if you had seen this, or what your thoughts were on on that um, on that document. Yeah, um, that that technique using a camera obscura, it's mm-hmm. it's a pretty safe bet that a lot of artists did. Um, and David Hockney came out with a book mm-hmm. that made big waves when it first came out because he was approaching it like I'm going to bust these old masters who really weren't as good as we think they are. Um, in point of fact, it, it, it's true that some of them used a camera obscura or some equivalent of it, but if you've ever seen one of these in action, it doesn't actually give you that much more than an outline. Mm-hmm. It's, um, Hockney's book was trying to make it seem like you could basically trace what you saw and mm-hmm. it would come out as a nice painting, but in fact, it's a quite blurry projection that gives you the basic outlines of things. Um, but you have to fill in any detail yourself. So it's not quite as um, groundbreaking a discovery as it seems. But that documentary was, was very cool. Um, and, you know, there's a certain level of, of decent uh, copy that you can pull off if you teach yourself how to paint and that really anybody can do. Um, and the touch of inspiration in an original hand, also the invención and the concept behind a work of art before you even touch the brush to the canvas, how you're going to position the figures, what your interpretation of the scene, usually a biblical and mythological scene, is that you're going to create. All of that is what you can't copy mechanically or teach yourself just through hard work. There's this touch of genius there. And so that's what's always going to be missing from something that is a copy, even if it looks pretty much like the original. The thing that is interesting about this Rembrandt project and that is interesting about um, essentially copies or forgery and authenticity in this digital age is how we're able to produce with relative technology um, things that really look exactly, you know, sometimes down to even the texture of paintings. So one project that is um, interesting is there's a new option through the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam where you can buy a portfolio of the greatest hits from that museum um, and they will be scanned. The originals are scanned three-dimensionally and then printed three-dimensionally. So you know how Van Gogh is, of, of all artists, is the most textural. He's got so much impasto, the buildup of pigment on the canvas, that it's almost three-dimensional. So there's some paintings of his where the paint itself is so gooey and globby that it <laughs> shadow on the canvas. And this actually reproduces that. And f- for something very, it's like a quarter of a million dollars, you can have in your home or in your museum um, exact replicas, the same size, the same texture, every drop of paint replicated mechanically wow. as they have in the Van Gogh Museum. And it brings up some interesting moral questions. Yeah. Is that like a 3D printing or something? It's 3D scanning and 3D printing at an incredibly high level. Um, But yeah, you can can do this this crazy stuff. And, you know, I think the danger is that um, uh, a museum, who knows who the clientele would be in in, uh, Abu Dhabi or something like that, is going to drop a quarter million to get these eight um, greatest hits of Van Gogh. 
and they look exactly like the originals, and people are going to go see the mechanically reproduced versions, and they're going to say, oh, well, I saw the Van Goghs um, in Abu Dhabi. I don't have to go to Amsterdam to see the originals. Hmm. And that would be a bit of a shame. It's cool to bring the works to as many people as possible, but I wouldn't want someone to... Um, to decide not to go see the original because they figure, ah, I've seen the others. And the, the example I give in my book is um, if you go to Vegas and you go to the Venetian and you decide, I don't have to go to Venice, the city in Italy, <laughs> because I've been to the Venetian, it looks just like it, right? That would be a shame, I think. But I, what I would love to see is um, an exhibit with the original and one of the 3D printed copies next to each other with no copy to tell which is which, and you have to play the game and guess. Yeah, that'd be yeah. fun. I was going to say, that actually brings me to a question about um, kind of today and um, what you think the the type of art that will be remembered, you know, 500 years from now that, that is being made today. Is it is it different today because of technology? Are there things that are happening in the world of technology that will be considered art? Or do you still think it'll just be paint on a canvas that will be considered the real art 500 years from now? Well, this is actually the subject of another book that I haven't started working on, but will soon. And um, basically in 1917, there was a big split in the art world. And uh, your listeners can try to guess what happened in 1917, but the drum roll, it was Marcel Duchamp's Fountain, which is um, a men's urinal that he bought. Um, turned on its side. He signed with the fake name of an artist, which was in fact the name of the company he had bought it from. And he tried to get the uh, uh, Modern Art Museum in Paris to acquire it. And he said, this is uh, the greatest sculpture he ever made. He never actually admitted to having made it himself, but it was quite obvious that he had. Um, and at first he was laughed out of the room, but a couple of years later they actually did acquire it. And from that point on, art split in two different directions. And I'm going to be doing a book about the direction that I actually don't like as much, which is the conceptual one. Prior to that, and still to this day, there is an avenue of art that is traditional classical um, that follows Aristotle's three ideas about what constitutes a good work of art, which is that it should be beautiful, interesting, and exhibit skill. Uh, he said good, by which he means it skillfully executes what the artist sought to execute. And all of a sudden, 1917, we have this new avenue that says art does not have to be good as in exhibiting skill. It does not have to be beautiful. It only has to be interesting. And so you have two avenues after that. And the two don't really belong in a one versus the other conversation. You're not going to say Duchamp's Fountain versus Michelangelo's David. Um, they're two different things. They're, they're not trying to do the same thing. And so I'm interested in writing a book that is going to take a devil's advocate standpoint because I like these old, you know, politically incorrect white European guys painting in traditional styles, which I know is not hipster at all, but that, that's what I, what I love most. And I think a lot of the conceptual stuff is interesting and a lot of it's kind of silly. And so I wanted to tackle the conceptual stuff and I'm actually... I'm going to be doing a book with Ulai, the famous performance artist who I mentioned. I met him after interviewing him for uh, a feature in The Guardian that I did about um, his uh, having fallen out with his former partner, Marina Abramovich. Mm-hmm. And we've become friendly since then, and we're going to do a, a book in dialogue where um, he's going to walk me through what he thinks are the 50 most important conceptual artworks in history. Um, and I'm going to basically counter-argue and say, you know, insist why is this art why is you running headfirst naked into a wall repeatedly a work of art (laughs) and he's got a good sense of humor about it but it should be fun and interesting because it's something i'd like to explore that sounds awesome yeah what about somebody like banksy i he is he's very cool i have to say i really like his ironic sense of humor yeah well I just wonder how, the, like his his expression is going to be viewed five hundred years from now. I, I don't know if there's any single work of his that is going to be iconic. He's more of an iconic counterculture figure. I think that he he's more famous than any of his works of art, which is unusual. Okay. Um, 
you know, historically most artists, I mean, before around 1500, it would be a bit of a surprise if people knew the names of artists outside of the immediate area um, where, where the art this art was created, the idea that you would sign a work of art is a 19th century concept primarily. Um, but in these days we have artists who are famous, recognizable, like pop culture icons, but people would be hard-pressed to name any of their works. So it's, it's backwards from the way it has been traditionally. But he's, you know, he's a lot of fun, but he's creating things that are clever and you know, part prank, part work of art, mm-hmm. but they're thought-provoking. Um, they're interesting. They happen to be cool looking. I'm not sure if beautiful is the right term. They don't really exhibit skill, but that's okay. Um, one of my colleagues who used to run Scotland Yard's arts unit, Vernon Rapley, did a, a because he was seeing lots of Banksy forgeries for sale. And he wondered you know, how easy were they to make. He just was able to um, use Photoshop to. to um, download something from the internet and to, to make a, a cutout like a stencil he, yeah a stencil and, and he cut it out um, printed it out and he bought some the, the exact same paper and the exact same spray paint that Banksy would use for some of his um, his spray paintings and it cost him like six pounds to get everything and these were selling for you know tens of thousands and the original sells for a hundred thousand wow. um, and but Banksy is very subversive he, he actually on his website, when I was researching the forgery book, I found that he published a recipe out of forge one of his works on his own blog. <laughs> nice. So he's, he's more of a cultural icon than an artist in the traditional sense, but that's, that's in vogue these days. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's been great talking to you. I'm, I'm definitely going to go out and get this museum time app that I saw that you were involved in because I want to check that out. Oh, cool. And, Thank uh, you so much for having me. Yeah, totally. Besides uh, noacharney.com, is there any other place that people can get in contact with you? Yeah, well, uh, they're welcome to join me in social media on Facebook, for example. And you, if you're interested in learning more about real art crimes or even coming to study with me in Italy over the summer, you're welcome to. You can learn more at artcrimeresearch.org. Nice. Well, great. thank you very much, sir. It was a pleasure. Thanks. You guys have been great. I really appreciate all the reading and research you've done. I do lots of interviews where it's very clear that people aren't quite sure who I am and they definitely haven't read any of my books. So I very much appreciate the research you did. Well, we try to only talk to people that we're interested in. So it, ma- cool. it makes it more fun for us. Very cool. Um, send me a message when it's going to run. I'll look forward to listening to it. Will do. Okay. Have a good day. Thanks. Bye. You too. Thank you for listening to the Evil Twin Podcast. To get the full Evil Twin experience, go to eviltwinpodcast.com and follow the guys on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Evil Twin Podcast. If you really want to show your support, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcasts on iTunes. And remember, first of all, I'm going to follow the first